dealt with the teaching of God, dealt with the teaching of Jesus, and tonight we're going to deal with humanity, teaching of man. These three major points, I think, are important, uh, and uh, as we look at these things, uh, we want to, of course, deal with these from a biblical view. Uh, Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 8, and let's see what the Scripture says. I hope you picked up an outline, and the quotes are in the back right there. Roseanne's right back there, so if you didn't get one, raise your hand. I'm sure she'd be glad to bring you one. One, two. Okay. All right. Let's see what the psalmist says. And I, and I just picked this one out because it really just talks about God and his relationship to man. And, and just to give us a feel for what the scripture says as, before we get into the different teachings of doctrine. Here's what it says. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above all the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? Isn't that wonderful passage? What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visited him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to work, to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The psalmist expresses an overall view of how we believe the Bible speaks about man. First of all, that man is a creation of God, a special creation of God. That he is not in the God, what we might say, the God class, nor can he ever be in the God class. He is a human being. He is a special creation of God. And, and we were created for God, for his glory, and for fellowship with him. And we're not only created for an instant, but we're created for eternity. But as you're going to see, that as we talk about Mormonism's view of man, you'll see that their, their view of man extends much further than, than anything that the Bible speaks about. And we, we, we've already, when we talked about God, and this ties together, you'll remember that Mormonism taught about God as we are, God once was. As we are humans, God once was a human. And as God is, what's it say? We may become. So we have an evolving theology of God, that God was once a human being but became a God. He ascended, he evolved to be a God. And if we do everything right, we too can move up that ladder and someday have our own planet and and have our own spirit children that we will make or I don't want to say with our heavenly mother for Eternity, and then the beings on that planet will also procreate, providing the human bodies for the spirits that are procreated by us in heaven somewhere. Does your head hurt yet? All right, let's look, and let's let, let's look at uh, uh, for tonight because I do have so much, and I hope we can get through this. And and uh, if I go a little bit over, and you have to leave, I understand that. But uh, I just, I want to deal with this matter of humanity uh, and what the Mormonism teaches. So, in your outline there, let me. I, I, this time, what I want to do is give you kind of an outline of what they teach, and then, then we're going to look at some of the quotes that they say about this. Look at your outline with me. And here are the basic basic teachings of the Mormon faith when it comes to mankind. Okay, Mormonism teaches that humans pre-existed as organized intelligence. In other words, basically that you existed somewhere before you came to earth. That your parents procreated, but who you are, the spiritual being you are, was created by the Heavenly Mother and the Heavenly Father somewhere else. And that spirit came into your physical body. Okay? The Bible does not teach anything about a repository of the souls. It doesn't teach anything about our souls pre-existing before we became human beings. But in the miracle of God, you know what the Bible teaches. In the miracle of God, that, 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 that I believe that conception, that God does a miracle as a part of the procreation, procreative process where a human soul comes into existence. And only God can do that. We don't create human souls. But God has allowed us to be a part of the procreation process. And nowhere does it tell us you know, how that happens. Just that it does happen. 
Okay. Second thing, Mormonism teaches that we are born of heavenly parents, and we are when we are born of our heavenly parents, we are gods in embryo state. So, heavenly parents procreating somewhere out there, creating you and I as God embryos to enter into the human body. Number three, part of their progression to Godhood includes a probationary period on earth. So earth becomes a probationary period. It is a testing period. It is a, a period of development. It's, it's to see what kind of person you are. Because, again, the ultimate goal is for each individual soul to attain to Godhood so that they can have their own planet and they can have their own children throughout eternity. Number four, there was a great war in heaven that divided the children of God. One third followed Lucifer, and remember last week we found out, according to Mormon doctrine, who is Lucifer? He is the brother of Jesus, according to Mormon doctrine. It's an incredible statement. I hope that you sort of went, you know, when you, when you heard that. He is a brother of Jesus. But one third followed Lucifer, and two thirds followed Jesus. Of the two thirds that followed Jesus, one third were less valiant than the other. So they received black skin when they came to earth. Okay? Which is why, for most of the history of the Church of Jesus Christ, the letter states that a black man could not attain to the priesthood. Now, They've had a new revelation. You need to know that. And a new revelation is that this isn't so now. Which kind of says that if the new revelation is that this isn't so, then the truth would be that it never has been so. Which would mean that any prophets that proclaimed it to be so would be identified as false prophets. Now when you try to say that to a Mormon person, what they will say is, no, we just have a progressive revelation. That prophet only had what God was willing to give him, but now we have new prophets that have been given more. Problem is, we're not talking about even in their even in that view. I want you to get this. Even in that view, it's not progressive revelation. It actually is what's called contradictory revelation. It'd be one thing to say we don't know yet about the black skin man. It's quite another thing to say that they had that black skin because they were a part of the one-third that, that were not valiant enough to be accepted of God into the priesthood. You understand the difference there? So we actually have a contradictory revelation, not, not a progressive revelation. All right. The fifth thing. Adam transgressed but did not sin. By the way, you remember that we said that their teaching is that the God of this world is Adam. Dare you say that God sinned? We read on. Number, number six. Adam's transgression is not passed on to the human race. Each person is responsible for their own sins. So even though Adam transgressed, remember, I'm not going to use the word sin because they won't use it, but I don't know what the difference is between a transgression and a sin. Maybe someone can explain that to me. Okay? Uh, so, But Adam's transgression was not passed on to you or to me. We're each responsible for our own sin. I hope you know that. Well, we'll, I get some scripture for you, okay? All right. Then the last thing, number seven. The ultimate goal of humanity is is to become a perfected God. So you have there in a nutshell the theology or the teaching of the Mormon church when it comes to the matter of of mankind. Okay, so take your outlines and also have your Bible ready. And I think Kathy has these verses up on the screen. So if you don't want to flip through, I'm going to, so you can join me if you want to. Uh, But let's see what the Bible has to say about this. Because again, you want to be equipped uh, by the Word of God. Um, Let's let's see what the Bible says first, and then we'll begin to read uh, some of the some of these these other statements. Take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter one twenty seven, and I know you're very familiar with this passage of scripture. And in the midst of God speaking of creation, and what does the word creation come from? What's it speak of? When we say God created something, what are we saying? We're we're saying that God made something out of nothing. 
We're not saying that God took something that pre-existed and formed it. We're saying, uh, what's the term, ex nihilo? That is, out of nothing God spoke it and it was. And we have the account of creation given to us here in Genesis chapter 1. And that's what it says. He created. So, verse 27, it says this. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Alright, so what's it say, what's the Bible say about God and man? It says, it says this, that man, that man is a special creation of God. That God created them. The Bible says nothing whatsoever about some pre-existent procreation taking place in some heavenly place and the spirit bodies of, of, of those babies going into human babies and that is, the result of that is what we know to be mankind. There's nothing in the Bible about this. It really is almost it almost seems like a fantasy when you when you really look at it and stuff. But let's see what some of the some of the quotes uh, from the Mormon theologian. President a presidency member and these are on your your outline sheet there. Presidency member John Taylor said, "In another point of view, we look at him, humankind, as emanating from the gods." And notice the plural there. And you say, "Why did you capitalize these, pastor?" Because it, because it's a direct quote from him and he capitalized them. I wouldn't capitalize these. So just so you know that, okay, I don't believe there are many gods. This is a quote. So, all right, as God in embryo, as an eternal being who has, has existence before he came here. Okay, so that's how they view humanity, all right? According to Joseph Fielding Smith, human beings are predetermined to forget their pre-existence when they arrive here on the earth. Without doubt, Jesus came into the world subject to the same condition as, as was required for each of us. He forgot everything. He had to grow from grace to grace. His forgetting or having his former knowledge taken away would be uh, requisite just as it is in the case for each of us to complete the present temporal existence. Now put that one in there because what they want you to believe is Jesus is our older brother. What they want you to believe is that we are the, of the same essence as Jesus is. And then what they would say here, and by the way, I don't know how Jesus knew who his father was if, when he was 12 years old if he didn't know who his father was when he was 12 years old. Okay? So when, we, when, you, when you look at this, they're saying that when you, you, and, you and I as human beings come to earth, that we forget our pre-existence. And now all we know is basically the here and now. But again, God gave special revelation to the prophets of the Mormon church to tell them that we did pre-exist, even though the scripture knows nothing of this. Alright, so... There's so much. (laughs) Um, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. And, and I give you this too, so we, you say, well, how does this work? And I know you know how it works, but how does the Bible tell us it works? Well, first of all, Genesis chapter 127 told us that we are, mankind is a creation of God. But in part of that creation, God has set in, in, in process or uh, a, the process uh, of procreation. And so we have even described in the scripture that process that God instituted after the creation of man. According to scripture, we only know of two human beings that were created in the sense that Adam and Eve were created. Okay? And after that, we have recorded for us the system, if you will, I don't know how else to say it, the system that God put in, that God instituted for the continuation of the human species. And what, what, is that, what is that process? Well, he says here, verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and that knew there is more than know her. It is to, to have an intimate relationship with her. Basically, Adam had an intimate relationship in the bonds of marriage. You say, who, who married him? Well, it doesn't say, but I think it says God brought the woman to the man, so that's good enough. I mean, if God says it's okay for them to be together, I think we're okay with that too, right? Okay? So, they had intimate relationships with one another, and the result of that is, it says, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again. This time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. 
And so what does the Bible teach us about how this works? The Bible teaches us, first of all, that the first two were a special creation of God. But the rest of us are a result of the procreation uh, process that God has instituted. So we're all, and we know, we're the results of, of, our, of our parents coming together in that union. And that's the way that God intends for it to be. Um, when, when, when you look at what, what Mormonism teaches again, is that man basically exists, if you think about it, to supply the physical bodies for the spiritual beings that have already been brought into existence into heaven. Again, the Bible knows no such thing. By the way, some of you, I don't know how long, much you've even d- dug into Roman Catholicism, but Roman Catholicism teaches a, pl- uh, a thing called the repository of the souls. The pre-existent souls. It's an interesting thing. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Okay? So when you look at that, when you look at this here, you see, again, the viewpoint here is, is that, that human beings were... Yeah, Again, from our perspective, you'd almost say they're saying that human beings are eternal before they existed here on the earth. Or at the very least, that they existed before they were here on the earth. Again, contrary to what the scripture teaches. Nowhere does the scripture even infer that. Okay? The next thing that when we talk about humanity is the point that I brought up where there was this, uh, this great war in heaven. It's kind of a kind of a um, well. Let's see what the scripture says. Does the scripture teach that there was a war in heaven? Yes, actually it does. Take your Bible and turn to Ezekiel chapter twenty-eight. And if you were with me on Tuesday mornings, we've already looked at Ezekiel chapter twenty-eight. And here's what it says, Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 17. And I would encourage you to read the whole chapter. You say, well, it looks like he's speaking to the the king of Tyre. And he uses the term king of Tyre to speak of the spiritual authority and power over the region of that time. He's already spoken in the first part of this chapter to the prince of Tyre, which was the, the human authority. Now he's speaking to the king of Tyre, who is the spiritual authority. Now, look at how he describes him. And you can see clearly that he's not talking about a human being here. We read. Here's what he said. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, there's no way there was a human being that was standing before Ezekiel at that time that was also in Eden. Okay? Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, the topaz, diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Now what's that tell you about Lucifer? What's a cherub? Guardian of the throne. Okay, but what are they? Angels. They are angels. They are a class of angels. There are two classes of angels in the scripture. The cherubs and the seraphs. Okay? So he says, you were the anointed cherub that covers. I establish you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth amidst the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Kind of smacks down that Lucifer is one of the children of God in the same way that Jesus is a child. He can't be the brother of Jesus. Got that? The day you were created. Until iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading you became filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery, of the fiery stone. Your heart was lifted up because of, of your beauty. You, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Okay? So we have there describing what happened to Lucifer. Was he cast out of heaven? Yes, he was cast out of heaven. But there's another passage that you say, where did everybody get this one-third thing? Well, take your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12. Starting with verse 7. 
And here's what he writes. And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. Who is the dragon? Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought. His angels. He has demons. He has angels. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. You say, well, when did this happen? Now, some people say, that's revelation. It must mean it's going to happen. I would say, no, I would say he's describing what has already happened. That they were cast out. Now, getting back to the point. The Mormon church, as I read, says that one-third of the angels, which would mean that one-third of God's children in that place, because remember, every angel that we call an angel would, would, would by definition have to be a, ch- a child of God and a brother or a sister of Jesus, by their own definition. Okay, Because no being exists except they exist because of the procreation between uh, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. So one-third of God's children rebelled against him and went with Lucifer, the second eldest son of the one they call Elohim. Okay? He goes on to say that when this, when this took place, those one-third became demons, and they will not dispute that. But two-thirds stayed and fought with Jesus, the eldest brother. One-third of those were noble in their battle, and they were able to come to earth as the white-skinned people. Another third of them were not noble in their battle, so they were, they were consigned to come to earth as the dark-skinned people. Okay, so that's the picture of what they said. So, so the Bible again. Does the Bible know anything of that kind of thing? Doesn't teach anything about that at all. Okay, so let, let's hear what some of their teachers say. And I'm back on your on your your um, quotes. The war began because Lucifer planned. Lucifer's plan of salvation was rejected. And we talked about this last week when we talked about Jesus and Lucifer. In this grand rebellion in heaven, Lucifer, or Satan, a son of the morning, and one-third of the hosts thereof were cast out into the earth because Lucifer sought to destroy the free agency of man, and one-third of the spirit sided with him. He sought the throne of God and put forth his plan in boldness in the great council, declaring that he would save all, and not one soul should be lost. Provided God would give him the glory and the honor. When his, plan, when his plan was rejected for a better one, he rebelled. So this great competition between the elder brother Jesus, the younger brother Lucifer. God accepted Jesus' plan. In other words, God didn't know how to do this. So the two brothers said, Jesus come forth and say, Father, I'll do this. Lucifer comes forth and say, Father, I'll do this. And God says, I like Jesus' plan better. And Lucifer becomes angry. And he leaves a rebellion in heaven. That's the picture. Okay? Jesus organized the angels in battle. There were no neutrals in the war of heaven. All took sides either with Christ or with Satan. The less valiant angels were cursed to become Negroes on the earth. We naturally conclude that others among the two-thirds did not show loyalty to the Redeemer that they should. That the Negro race, for instance, had been placed under restriction because of their, their attitude in the world of the spirits. Few will doubt. Well, I don't know there's a few in this will doubt this is true. Okay? Every man had his agency there. And men receive rewards here based on their actions where? There. Just as they will receive their rewards hereafter for the deeds done in this body. The Negro evidently is receiving the reward for his merits. Okay? So, anyways, I'll just let it stand where it is. I'm just going to let that go. Okay? The next thing that, that, we, uh, that we see in the outline that I give you is, is that they teach, as I said, that, that, uh, that Adam transgressed, but he did not sin. 
So, take your Bibles and turn to Romans. Let's see what the Bible says about that. I know you know what the Bible says about that. But Romans 5.12, and here's what it says. Just, therefore, just as through one man, who's the one man here? Adam. Adam. And notice what he said. Just as through one man, sin entered the world. Makes it pretty plain. Is Adam guilty of sin, according to the scripture? Of course he is. Just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Okay? Again, you go, to, you go to the other passage. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Adam did not just transgress. Adam sinned. But as incredible as, as it might seem to you, Adam needed to sin, according to Mormon theology, in order for us, through free agency, to ascend eventually to the place where we might receive godhood. Now, it's convoluted, but what they're saying, it was necessary for Adam to sin. So they almost, not almost, they, they praised Adam for sinning. Well, let's see what he said. Joseph Fielding Smith, who I just read a little bit, said, I never speak of the part of Eve took in the fall as a sin, nor do I accuse Adam of sin. It is true the Lord warned Adam and Eve that to partake of the fruit would, would transgress the law. God's law. But the point is, if you... First John says every sin is a transgression of the law. I mean, you can't get any more plain than that. So he admits that Adam transgressed the law but does not put it in the category of sin. Well, we read on. And this happened. But it is not always sin to transgress the law. That is, his transgression was in accordance with the law. Wow! This man should have been a lawyer in the courts today. Think about what he just said here. This is incredible. It's not always a sin to transgress the law. As a matter of fact, his transgression of law is a fulfillment of the law. Okay? Certainly, Seal, assistant to the prophets, explained that Adam fell, but he fell in the right direction. He fell toward the goal. Adam fell, but he fell upward. Now, folks, I know we laugh at this, but here's what I want you to understand. We're talking about eternal souls here. This, is, this doctrine which we talked about for the last two weeks, including, this is not a small thing. Because you will remember when we talked about God, they believe that Adam is, is their God who has ascended to Godhood. And notice you see the teaching here that Adam did not just fall into sin. Adam transgressed the law, but his transgression of the law was in, accord, in accordance with the law to make everything better for us. So shame on you for believing that sin is an awful thing. Yet every passage in the scripture when it deals with sin, it never speaks of it in a light manner. And, it, and we should never speak of it in a light manner. It destroys humanity. It destroys families. It destroys churches. It destroys societies. The Bible is replete with, with examples of people who have gone off into sin. And how it's destroyed whole societies of people. There, there, there are nations that are recorded in the Old Testament that are not in existence today because of their sin. And God's judgment upon their sin. And the day's going to come when God's going to say, you know what? I'm done. My patience is gone. And this world has decided that it, that it wants to live without me and I'm going to let it. It's going to be a terrible time as you read it in the scripture. Alright, so, again, remind you that they teach that Adam did not sin, but he transgressed the law. But again, that, that law, that transgression was not a bad thing, but was a good thing. Alright, the next point. Adam's transgression is not passed on to the human race. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. 
And you're already there. Starting with verse 12. We already read verse 12, but I'm going to read the following with it. And verse 12 uh, through verse 21, here's what he says. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to who? All men. Because all sinned. For unto... For until, excuse me, until the law of sin was in the world, uh, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness and transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So, were we cursed? Was sin put into the human race because of Adam? Of course it was. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what he says there in verse 14, makes it pretty clear. But the gift, excuse me, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many die, much more the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Again, St. Adam sinned, don't miss that. The one who sinned. For the judgments which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through that one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to who? To all men, resulting in condemnation, even... So, through one man's righteous act, the gift, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made, what? Sinners. You just can't get around this. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. Now, let me define that with me. Who's the one man's offense that made many sinners? Adam. Who's one man's act that made one man's obedience which made many men righteous? Jesus. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Alright? But they would teach that Adam's guilt did not pass on to men. From the Pearl of Great Price, which is one of their books, we told you there's four books. What are they very, very quickly? The Book of Mormon. Somebody? Doctrine and Covenants. The King James Bible and the Pearl of Great Price. Okay? Those are the four books, alright? To the Pearl of Great Price, it says this. We believe that all men will be punished for their own sin and not for Adam's transgression. Okay? Again, the Bible says, well, we just read it. We just read it. The last point that they, they make, and i got some quotes here for you. I, I, you know what? I didn't give you scripture verses for the last point where it talks about, where they talk about ultimate whole of, the goal of humanity is to become a perfected God. Because there, there is no Bible verses for that. You know? Because it just... It, but here's the quote. Humanity is designed to have an, an earth, and humanity is designed to have an earth and populate it. According to Heber C. Kimball, when you have learned to become obedient to the Father that dwells upon this earth, to the Father and God of this earth, and obedient to, to the messengers he sends, when you have done all that, remember you are not going to leave this earth. You will leave, you will never leave it until you become qualified and capable and, and capacitated to become a father of an earth yourselves. Children, children begin their existence as gods in embryo. Now this, out of the doctrines of salvation, as gods in embryo. And endlessly repeat the cycle. As Joseph Fielding Smith explains, the Father has promised us that through our faithfulness, we shall be, we shall be blessed in the fullness of His kingdom. In other words, we will have the privilege to become like Him. To become like Him, we must have, we must have all the powers of Godhood. Thus a man and his wife, when glorified, will have spirit children who eventually will go on on an earth like this one, uh, this one we are on, and pass through the same kind of, of experiences, being sub- subject to mortal conditions. And if faithful, then they also will receive the fullness of the exaltation and partake in the same blessing. There is no end to this development. It, go, it will go on forever. So you see, again, the teaching that man, the, the ultimate goal of man is to become 
a, a, a perfected God. Now, clearly, before I move on to the next point, Mormon's belief concerning humanity is, is diametrically opposed to what the scripture teaches. And we're not talking about something small here. When you, when you start teaching people are gods in embryo, the pre-existent state of man as gods in embryo, as a result of procreation between a, a heavenly father and a heavenly mother, you, you've got all sorts. And then to develop through this, this testing period, if you will, to ultimately, through obedience, become a god yourself. The, the whole view of humanity is just skewed. I don't know how else to say it. And it's dangerous. We're not talking about small differences here. We're talking about differences that are as different as night and day. When we talked about God and their view of God, well, clearly, if God was once a man, if your God was once a man, you don't have a very good God. If your God is still evolving. If if your Savior has a brother by the name of Lucifer, you've got a real problem with who your Savior is. I mean, we can go right on down the line, and you need to understand that. And you need to understand it because we live in a day and time where the propaganda is that there is no difference between the Mormon faith and evangelical Christianity. The Mormons are, are pushing this forth. Every, you see the commercials all the time. And you know what? They're good at the propaganda. But, but they, they have a, I want to say they have a better foundation than many Christians because they have proved through time that they believe in the family. They are great to have as neighbors. You live in the East Valley. When I lived in East Mesa, they're great people to have as neighbors. Great neighbors. Friendly people. Moral people. But when they say certain things, you need to understand they don't mean the same thing. When they say God, Father God, they're not talking about the one true and only God of the Bible. When they talk about their Savior Jesus, it's not Jesus of the Bible. By their own doctrine, they deny that. And when they talk about salvation, they're not talking about what we speak about salvation, that, that we have been born into sin, like David said, we are born into sin, and, 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 and we are estranged from God. Jesus came and he died in our place in order that we might be reconciled with God our Father. You've got to understand that. Because there are so many Christians that are ignorant of this. And, and it's just like, oh, well, they believe just like we do. They don't. You've got to understand that. And by the way, because of the way things are going, if you state that you understand the differences, you will probably be seen as a hateful person. Okay? One of the reasons why I want to equip you with first generation material, not what people say about Mormonism, but what Mormons say about Mormonism, is so you have what they say. No, you have to say, you know what, your own prophet said this. Doctrine and Covenant says this. Alright, let's go on to the next point before we run out of time. I'm going to talk to you just about eternity and just for a little bit talk to you about their view of eternity because it makes a difference. One of the things that I, sh- I share with you, and this is last night on Mormonism, one thing I, want, I know you, that some of you are curious about is the doctrine of baptism of the dead. Okay, what is taking place when they talk about baptism of the dead? In the Mormon temple, uh, one of the rituals that takes place is this baptism for the dead. Not baptism of the dead, but baptism for the dead. In other words, a practicing, faithful Mormon, by proxy, goes into the baptismal waters in the temples... And they go through the ritual of baptism for those who have already died. In order, in order ultimately, that that soul who, was, who may have preceded even the revelation of Joseph Smith might have the same opportunity to ascend to the different levels of heaven that a good Mormon would. You need to understand something. If you want to know something about your... How many of you ever had a genealogy done in your family? We have a book for our family. It goes all the way back to them coming over with the Mayflower group. Okay? My uncle did that. He spent a couple of years doing that. Guess where he found most of his information? Mormon church. They have the most extensive genealogy you will find in the world. Why? Just because they're curious? No, it's not just because they're curious. It's because they are daily 
daily calling up the different names on those genealogies and having them being baptized by proxy. A few years ago, they began to baptize for the, the, the victims of the Jewish Holocaust. It almost caused, well, it, it caused a big stir. Okay? Uh, I would say to you that if you have Mormon family members, if you have family members that are Mormon, you've either been baptized for, been baptized for, or you will be baptized for. And you will never know it. But somehow in eternity, when we leave this world, you'll be glad they did that because it will enable you to move up. Alright? Baptism of the dead. Where would they get such a notion? Well, I didn't give this one to, to uh, Kathy. But take your Bibles and turn to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And verse 29 of 1 Corinthians, there's a curious verse that, that Paul puts in there. How many of you have ever seen this verse? Okay? Now what is Paul talking about? What is the theme of this whole chapter? The resurrection is the theme. And here's what he says in verse 29. He says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And from that verse, the Mormons have said, See, even the Bible teaches baptism of the dead. I would say to you, there is nowhere in this verse that Paul's condoning the practice of baptism from the dead. He's talking about these people, these people, some who were baptizing for the dead, who said they didn't believe in the resurrection. And Paul says, then why are you, why are you even practicing this, this practice that you do, baptizing for the dead? There's no record in the scripture anywhere of Christian churches baptizing for the dead. It's just not there. His point here is not baptism of the dead. His point is the folly of denying the resurrection, yet doing all kinds of religious things in order that people might have eternal life. If you, in other words, if you don't believe in the resurrection, why would you do anything? That would, that would have a difference in eternal life. That was his point in this whole passage right here. Nowhere is he teaching that baptism of the dead was a practice or ever has been a practice in the Christian church. You're talking about those people who did such things. Who, by the way, were, for the most part, were pagans. It was a pagan practice. It was not a Christian practice. Yet they were denying the resurrection. Paul said, you know, you make no sense. You deny the resurrection, yet you baptize for the dead. Why do you do that? Notice there, the, the, notice there the pronoun is they. Look at that verse. The pronoun there is not we. Why? You know, if he was talking about the church, would not he have said, if, if there was no resurrection, why do we baptize for the dead? It's not we, it's they. Everybody get the point that he's trying to make here? All right. Let's see what, 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 some of the, what some of the Mormon teachings say about baptism from the dead. Here's what it said. Joseph Smith, first prophet, he said this. The greatest responsibility in the world that God has laid upon us is to seek after our dead. Again, why there's such a call for genealogies and you seek after the dead. We go on. Brigham Young says, This doctrine of baptism from the dead is a great doctrine. One of the most glorious doctrines that, ever, that, that was ever revealed to the human family. And, and there are light, power, glory, honor, and immor, immortality in it. Next one. I will, say, I will hear say... Before closing, that two weeks before I left St. George, the spirits of the dead gathered around me, wanting to know why we did not redeem them. Said they, you have had the use of endowment of the endowment house for a number of years, and yet nothing has ever been done for us. We laid the foundation of the government you now enjoy, and we, now, and we never apostatized from it, but we remained true to it and were faithful to God. They were the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And they waited on me for two days and two nights. And I thought it very singular that notwithstanding so much work had been done and yet nothing had been done for them. The thought never entered my heart from the, from the fact, I suppose, that heretofore our minds were reaching after 
our more immediate friends and relatives. I straightway went into the baptismal font and called upon Brother McAllister uh, to baptize me for the signers of the Declaration of Independence and 50 other eminent men, making 100 in all, including John Wesley, Columbus, and others. I then baptized him for every president of the United States except three. And when their cause is just, somebody will do their work for them. That's one of the prophets. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. By the way, there's necromancy going on here. He's speaking to dead. Not just to baptize for dead. He's speaking, he talks about how they speak. The spirits speak to him and say, why haven't you done this? So here's what you can know by their own declaration, by their own statement. Every sign of Declaration of Independence has been baptized for the dead. Fifty other noble men. Every president of the United States has been baptized for the dead. I believe it's their intention to baptize everybody. Everybody. They think, it, they think it's their call. Because somehow if they do this, then everybody will have the opportunity that missed it in this life to ascend to the proper place in heaven in the next life. And that brings me to the last point. Okay? That is the Mormon teaching on heaven. Well, let me just read to you what the Bible says about heaven. One of my favorite passages, and I, I love to read this one to you. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 through 27. He says this, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their honor and glory into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter in anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are rich in the Lamb's book of life. That is the clearest picture of our eternal home that's given in the scripture. That's heaven. What a wonderful and glorious place it's going to be. What a wonderful and glorious place, singular, it's going to be. The Bible in the book of Revelation makes a difference between the two eternal abodes of human souls. One being the lake of fire, which we would term hell, the lake of fire. Okay, And by the way, remember as you read that after the great white throne, then all those who did not receive Jesus were cast in the lake of fire, where the, where the Antichrist and the false prophet already were. Then it says, those souls will stand before the great white throne. They will be cast in the lake of fire. Then it says, death and Hades will be cast in the lake of fire. Okay, what's death in Hades? That's the abode, that's the place where the souls wait for judgment day. And that will be cast into the lake of fire. And finally Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. Alright, but the other place is heaven. Here's how John, he calls it the new Jerusalem. And it's our, our eternal place that God has prepared for us. But Mormons believe in a multi-leveled heaven. While the Bible teaches that heaven prepared for all those who are redeemed. Now, Mormons will tell you that they believe in hell. But they believe that hell it will be only the reciting place of Lucifer and the one-third that fell with him. That all humanity will, will reside in different levels of heaven. But apparently... Because of the baptism of the dead, having the ability to to move from one level to the next, even in the afterlife. Because remember, we're always evolving. We're always moving up. Even God is evolving and moving up. Let's look at some of the, some of the statements. Is that here? Heaven. There are three levels of heaven: the the telestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial. Okay. By the way, when they talk about this, they they're used again, one of Paul's quotes where Paul said he was taken up into the what? Into the third heaven. Okay? So from that they come with this, this three levels of heaven doctrine. Again, not spoken of in the scripture at all. Uh, you know, say, what is the third heaven that Paul went into? I think Paul went into the throne room of God the same way Isaiah did. But what's the first level of heaven? I would say the first level is the atmosphere that we have. The second level is what we would call outer space. And the third level would be in the presence of God. Beyond creation. 
Okay? So, but let's see what they say. The celestial kingdom. It is the highest and most glorious of degrees of glory and is symbolically re- represented by the sun. It is the kingdom where God himself reigns. It is understood that the celestial kingdom itself contains many degrees of glory. So even when you go to the highest place, there's still all these different... Okay. Anyone who inherits any degree of glory in the celestial kingdom dwells in God's presence. Go on out of Doctrine and Covenants. Here's what it says. According to the revelation from the Lord, only those who have been married and sealed in the temple, whether in this life or vicariously during the millennium, in this life or vicariously, okay, can attain to the very highest realm of the celestial kingdom. In agreement with the Apostle Paul's teaching, neither is the man without the woman nor the woman without the man in the Lord. Which again, remember, you're married for time and eternity. Mormonism teaches that marriage is not only divinely instituted, but eternally necessary and significant. Neither a man nor a woman can attain the fullest exaltation by themselves. Mormonism also teaches that since since not all people have the opportunity to marry in this life, opportunity will be given them during Christ's millennial reign after second coming. Additionally, Mormonism teaches that only those in the highest realm of the celestial kingdom will remain married and be able to form an eternal family. These are those who have made eternal marriage covenant on earth, rather than covenants that will cease with death. That's, that's a direct smack into our, you know, when I married I said, until what? Until death do us part. They are married for time and eternity. References for that statement, Doctrine of Covenants. And you'll see there, uh, Doctrine of Covenants 76 and 130. The second level. And we'll be through in just a minute. Let me just get to the last two. The terrestrial kingdom is symbolically represented as the moon. It is related to the moon because although it does not give forth as much light as the sun, that's the celestial, it gives more light when viewed from the earth than the stars, the telestial. So they relate the, the three, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Okay. When people in the terrestrial kingdom receive, uh, while people in the terrestrial kingdom receive God's glory, they cannot receive of His fullness and dwell eternally in His presence. So they get some of God's glory, but they don't get to dwell in His presence. People will inherit the terrestrial kingdom for the following reasons. And again, reference out of the doctrine of covenant: if they die without law. They'll go to the terrestrial kingdom. They receive a testimony of Christ after this life, but have rejected it while on earth. Okay? They they were honorable honorable people who allowed themselves to be blinded by the wickedness of this world. So if they're good people, moral people, but were blinded by the wickedness of this world, did did not follow the teachings of the Mormon church, they're going to go here. They were not valiant in their testimonies of Jesus Christ. Which brings me back to a thought I just had. must mean that there will be no black people in the celestial kingdom. What are they doing in Ghana? I, I don't know. Alright, let's look at the last, the last level. The lowest level. Now remember, humanity goes to one of these three levels. Hell is reserved for, the, for Satan and his demons. Okay, The celestial kingdom is compared to that of the stars. People who are sent to the celestial kingdom will be the last to be resurrected and cannot dwell where God and Christ live. This final resurrection will take place after the millennium. According to the Doctrine and Covenant, those who will inherit this kingdom are those who rejected the gospel, the testimony of Jesus, the prophets, and the everlasting covenant. And of course you know they're talking about the prophets of the Mormon church. These people were all, are also liars, adulterers, murderers, thieves, and all others who flouted God's commandments. So, even the worst of the worst will not go to hell, but will go to the lowest level of heaven. So basically you, have, you actually have a denial of hell for humanity in, in their theology. Alright. They, they will go to hell. They do believe that that's the place where they will where they will dwell. They will go to hell. That's their punishment. She asked, "Where did Lucifer and the angels go?" Okay. They address the Orientals, the Marian Indian. I mean, because they came to Marian Indian. That's a red skin, not a white skin. 
there, there's a whole lot of different views on, on, on the different shades of people. Uh, they, they've even said that, that some of the, if you read the Book of Mormon, there's different people groups there. And they, they said that some of the people, again, that weren't quite as faithful came over here and they, they became what we know as American Indians and stuff. And, and where Jesus said to his uh, to his his followers, I have other flocks that you do not know of, that he was directly referencing that group. But they're not quite as noble as a group that stayed there and kept the faith, you know. But by the way, uh, the genealogist—I think it was actually a Mormon genealogist—that proved that that was not true. In other words, that that no tribe, that one of, they said it's a lost tribe of Israel, but no tribe of Israel is in any way related to the American Indians or any Indians on this continent at all. Other question. Whole lot there. For three weeks, you have a whole lot. I want to say this, and then I'll close out. There is more than sufficient teaching from the Mormons themselves that, that you cannot, you can't, unless you're just going to be completely dishonest, you cannot say there's no difference between our faith and the Mormon faith. The other thing that you cannot do, you cannot say, and, I, and again, I'm not, it's not my place to judge anybody where they're personal. I'm not going to tell you that they're not saved people in the Mormon church. I believe that there are. But I also believe that no person can be saved by the theology of the Mormon church. Okay? And every Mormon that puts their faith in that needs to know Jesus. They need to know Jesus. But if they know him, they're not going to believe this stuff. Was that right? Is that right? You might be surprised. You might be surprised. There are very weak Christians in this world. They're very immature Christians. You take a baby, and you take that baby, and you take it away from its parents, and you, and, and you raise it in a certain way that's contrary to parents. That baby, although he is still a baby of the parents, that baby will... I'm just pointing a little guy right here. That, that, that baby will never know who his parents are. But is he the child of those two parents? Yes, he is. And I would say to you that there have been born-again people who stayed in the infancy state, who have been led astray, even by the Mormon church, and that's all they know. And by the way, I'm just going to say it so you understand it. Most of your nominal practicing Mormons know very little about what you've learned in the last three weeks. That's what you have to understand. Because what they're being told is that they are the genuine faith that was once given to the apostles and renewed by the prophet Joseph Smith. That's why they say they're the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. But you got to know you've got to know what what they teach because they don't. I'll give you this example. I was pastoring in San Manuel. This one couple comes and said, Pastor, we'd like to be married in your church. I said, well, where do you go to church? You know, I want to hear their testimony of faith. They said, well, we go to the Mormon church. I said, ooh, I've got a problem. I said, first of all, why do you want to be more married in our church? Said, we like the color of the carpet. <laughs> and you all have a center aisle. I said, well, I don't know if that's sufficient for me to do a wedding here. So we talked for, I went through the whole process with them and stuff. And, and, uh, and I told them several things. I said, you know, you say that you believe in Jesus, but your church teaches that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer and, and this thing. I, just like I told you, they said, oh, we never heard that. I said, well, go ask your bishop. So they go down and they ask their bishop there in San Manuel. The bishop says, yeah, that's true, but where would you hear that? Well, the, the, the Baptist preacher up on the hill told us about it. So they come back for the next session, and I tell them a little bit more, and they said, we never heard that. I said, go ask your bishop. So they go down and ask, well, that's true, but where would you hear that? Well, you know. Then finally he says, well, you really don't need to be going up to that Baptist pastor anymore. Well, we want to get married up there. So they told me, and we talked about it, and I talked about and had them pray with them about receiving the true Lord and stuff, and, and I don't know that they ever got it. Uh, I'm hoping that they did. But the day of their wedding, I, you know, when they made a confession of faith to Jesus, I said, okay, I'll, I'll go through it. I'm not, you know, but I went ahead and I went through with it. And sitting there about the tenth row back was the Mormon bishop. That was the most evangelistic wedding I have ever done. I was telling about Jesus. You know, uh, so, but, but uh, do this for me. Don't take what I've given you as, as a weapon out there. Okay? Take it as knowledge. Be equipped. 
and walk out there in the love of Jesus. Because these are precious souls that Jesus died for. And most of them are as lost as they can be. They don't know all this stuff. But you have enough now that you could you you could you should be clear be able to clearly show them even in their again not as a weapon but by their own teaching of their prophets that so your prophet said this but that's not the Jesus of the Bible I know that's what you've been taught but I want you to know the Jesus of the Bible and see what the Holy Spirit does with that I'm not doing this so again so we can say we're right and they're wrong I'm not doing this so that so that we can beat them over the head with their bad teachings. In any of the groups that we're going to talk about this, that's not the point of doing. The point of doing this is that it has become so blurred, the lines of truth have become so blurred that we even have evangelicals saying there's no difference between between Christians and and the Mormons, or Christians and Jehovah Witness, and Christians and Islam. It's incredible. There's a movement called Chrislam right now. Okay? And, and, and you say, well, Pastor, why are you doing the last one on Roman Catholicism? Because I want to tell you there's a complete difference between biblical Christianity and Roman Catholic theology. And some of you come out of Roman Catholicism. You know what I'm telling you is true. Elizabeth. Don't the Mormons read their Mormon books? Oh. Not any more than Christians read their Bible. <laughs> You know what I mean by that is, is people will come and they will they will say our bishop said this, our prophet say this, the apostles said this. It, it's it's not what does it actually say? And by the way, there is an evolution of the book itself. The, the the Book of Mormon they carry today is not the same Book of Mormon they carried even 40 years ago. There have been corrections because of new revelation doesn't our Bible say this is the only book you need that's exactly right I'll go with that and I'll get back there go ahead my sister brother-in-law are Mormon and have been for probably 40 years or so and if you were to meet with them or if you were to see them you would think they are as strong a Christian yep. as anybody in this room they are helpful and they conduct all of our family funerals and they are beautiful. They never mention the Book of Mormon. They read directly from the King James mm-hmm. Bible and you would not know. But I had been introduced to Mormons in Utah and I knew the difference. And when they became Mormons, I just cried and cried and cried. Mm-hmm. But my, you have to know my sister. She's she, most convincing person in the world. I do not discuss religion. We do talk about the Bible. We do talk about Christianity. But they are the most giving, the most wonderful people. They prosper. Everything yeah. you know, happens to them. Things to determine. Yeah. And they pray to God. They don't pray to Joseph Smith or any of those. So, it, you know, I know the difference. Yeah. She starts talking about Mormonism, but I, I can't. Even if I had this in my hand, you may, it, I wouldn't be able to make it. Yeah, and it may not be. And you have, it's not just a matter of having what you have. You also always go out under leadership of the Holy Spirit because He may say, I don't have anything for you to say right now. And you got to be sensitive to that. Yeah. I wondered if you have an estimate of the number in the Mormon church. The Mormons uh, number over 15 million now in the world. Over, they, they, for the longest time, the Southern Baptist was the largest non-Catholic categorized Christian group. But I think the Mormons have passed us up. Aren't they also the wealthiest? I would say yes. I think they're more used to be growing Catholic, but now I think it's the Mormons. Yeah, there's over a billion Catholics. Yeah. Huh. Gordon. How well prepared theologically are these kids that go from door to door? Um, I, I say that they that they are prepared with the standard message. They're kids. I know they have elder on their little badge, but the point is, if you if you get them, to, if you, they're prepared with a message. They're not prepared for discussion. They're not prepared for a real study. And, I, and I, what I always try to do, whether it's them or the Jehovah Witness come by, is what I intend to do is to take what I call the needle off the record. Stop the record from just playing and, and ask them a question where they have to think about their answer. It's not a pre-thing. But, but are they prepared? Yes. Are they well prepared? Uh, for most people, yes. For most people, yeah. 
Yes. Unlike her sister, I know of people that have wanted out of the, the religion, the Mormon religion. Yeah. Usually it's a wide... It's hard. Man. It's hard to get out. And it's, it's, right now it's just almost impossible. Well, let me tell you, if you know someone wants to be out, let me tell you how you do it. I know we're over time. If you have to leave, I understand. Let me tell you how you do it. We had a lady in our church in, in, in Tucson that was in a Mormon faith, came to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm privileged to minister to her. She came to faith in Jesus Christ. She wanted out of the Mormon faith. She, she actually got letters from the Mormon church with a bill for her tithes. And then, and then also, when she wanted out, they said, you can't get out. That's what they told her, you can't get out. And she said, what do I have to do to get my name out there? She said, you have to meet with the bishop. And so she called me and said, Pastor, they said I have to meet with the bishop. He has to come to my house and I have to do all these kind of things. And I said, I said, tell the bishop to come over to your house and tell me what time he'll be there. And so, so I met at her house when the bishop came. And I said, I said, Bishop, this family right here has come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they're members of my church now. And they, they've asked your church to remove their name from their roles. And I would like you to do that. So, he said, all you have to do is ask. It depends on who's asking. And they remove that. I'm telling you, it is virtually impossible. You're exactly, it is virtually impossible for a member of the Mormon church to get their name removed from the Mormon church on your own. It's virtually impossible. They just don't do it. So if you know somebody who wants out and you want, I'll go meet with them. Members of their church come to their house. I know. Yeah. While I was a sister, because um, I saw her with her checkbook, and they come to your house and get your job. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to institute that later on this summer. Okay. Gordon. Yeah. Right. They know it, it's it is an amazing thing. She married my son and they found her. Yeah. And they found her again. And then they were living in our house. And she got a letter, she got a phone call, and I said, I advised her that if you folks try to contact one more time that she go get a restraining order against the Mormon church. Yeah, you won't. You just have to you have to stand up when you want to. And it's interesting. Even though a person's been excommunicated, to them that does not mean they're done away with. It's just it's it's more of a standing to them. You're 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 in timeout type of thing. That's their view of excommunication. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Still gotta give your tithe. You're still responsible to the church. You're still a member of the church. All right, we're gonna stop there. I hope this has helped you. I hope you understand the reason for doing this. Again, 